All right, well, we are still in the middle of our Why Trust the Bible series, and we are looking today at the issue of the canonicity of Scripture. In other words, it's kind of the answer to the question of why trust the Bible when the Bible is missing some books. Well, of course, we, we have been framing these titles for these different sessions uh, as, from the standpoint of a skeptic. A skeptic might come along and say, why trust the Bible when the Bible is missing some books? We're not saying that it's missing some books, but a skeptic might. So just a quick recap, we're going to just briefly go over what the last three weeks have been. We looked first at why trust the Bible when the Bible is a human book, and we answered that with the doctrine of the inspiration of God's Word, the inspiration of the Scriptures, meaning that the Scriptures are God-breathed, and every word is the word of the unlying God. Uh, and yet, it is remains a human book and a divine book, two authors in one book. Uh, week two, we looked at why is the Bible, why trust the Bible when it's full of errors, looking at the inerrancy of Scripture, and we sh- had different. We didn't look at every single uh, uh, every single incidence of a, of an alleged error in the Scriptures, but we looked at an approach to take about what happens when a particular alleged a particular challenge comes to a particular part of the scriptures and say well that's just a that's just a it's just wrong and we looked at how to approach a question like that then last week uh, Tim looked at why trust the bible when the bible is full of myths looking at the distinction between the gospel and uh, various mythological uh, stories that have come about uh, through all sorts of ancient cultures what makes Jesus different from Zeus and Hercules um, know that we're, we, we set our stakes in the ground, that God's word is historical. It's based on the actual, uh, actual historical events. Um, and he worked you through how to, how to work through um, uh, how, uh, arguing for the historicity of different events. Now this time we're going to be looking at why should we trust the Bible in this particular form, right? Why should we trust the, what's in this Bible, Think of available on Crossway, the ESV. Why should we trust that? How do we know that the books that are in there are the right ones? What if we have extra ones that shouldn't be in there? What if there were some that were left out that God intended for us to use or that was intended to be Scripture? So if we're going to defend the Bible as the Word of God, how do we know that we can defend this and not part of this or too much of this or... Maybe there ought to be some other things in here. So the question is, is this book the Word of God, the whole Word of God, and nothing but the Word of God? That's the question we've got to wrestle with today. Because there's currents of thinking out there right now that say that this is how the Bible was put together. That hundreds of years after Jesus was born, church leaders with all sorts of social and political agendas picked and chose which books they wanted to represent Christianity and suppressed others that they found inconvenient. And so what we have is not, you know, the word of God, but it's some, you know, some political theater stunt by uh, Constantine's cronies and his bishops, right? That's the challenge that's out there in, out there to why this isn't actually God's word. Okay, next slide. 
think that's, yeah, here we go. So we are going to do some theological field training. Really, the rest of this course, starting next week especially, is going to have some technicalities, and it's going to deal with more complicated matters. You're going to get, you got a taste of it last week with Tim's material, because perhaps until last week, some of you had never heard of mystery religions uh, until Tim's uh, material came out last week. Uh, probably some of you haven't heard of Athanasius's festal letter or the manuscript families, but you are going to soon. Uh, so what's the point of field training? So let's just explain our approach. The point of field training is it's to get you to prepared to face difficult enemy opposition, and that training has got to be hard. But it's conducted in an environment where the people that are throwing difficulties at you aren't trying to harm you. They actually want you to succeed and be able to successfully overcome the real opposition when you encounter it out in the field. So my goal is to present you with some difficult ideas here in an environment where we can talk about them from a standpoint of faith uh, rather than you going out there where someone's going to rubbish you for your faith rubbish Christianity, rubbish the, the Bible, and expose you to ideas. I'd rather you get exposed to difficult ideas here in the context of your pastors and your elders, right? So you're, we're getting ready to encounter challenges to the Bible when we go out there and face it with people who, don't, who, aren't, our, who aren't friends of Christ, right? Very, if, if we get various angles of attack on the Bible, then when you encounter them out there, you won't be surprised. You'll be prepared, and you'll at least have the gist of how to refute those attacks. Um, I think about how some young people grow up in the church when they aren't exposed to uh, given exposure to some of the more challenging matters uh, of Christianity. Then they go out to a Religions 101 course their first semester of college with a prof that's just hostile to the gospel, and they're totally unprepared when he starts throwing things at them. So we don't want that to happen. We don't want that to occur with our kids. We don't want that to occur with ourselves. It's better within the community of faith uh, to introduce you to difficult teaching. So, all right, here's our specific challenge for the day. Next slide. Is the Bible missing some books? Do we have the right books? The reason this particular charge feels unsettling at times, or at least can gain some traction, is because it focuses on questions most Christians aren't even aware are questions. But think about it. Did, did Did we have the word in this form right at AD 95? Right? Did it appear like this in a nice leather bound copy? Of course it didn't. Now, most Christians just take it for granted that they have the right books in the Bible. In fact, they've never even questioned that. That's actually fine as a default position. It's appropriate for us to have a default understanding, a default uh, trust and faith. We assume that there's good reasons for why these books are here, even if we don't know those reasons. That's fine. But it's helpful also to know that there, you know, that there were discussions and questions in the early church. Uh, there were other books that were considered and that weren't included. So let's take a look at some of these categories. So the apostolic fathers. A lot of Christians have never heard of books like First and Second Clement, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Didache, all of which are early Christian writings written probably in the very late 
first century and the beginning of the second century. So they're written around the same time, though a little later, of other New Testament of, of New Testament books. And in many cases, they were required reading before a Christian convert could be baptized in the early centuries of the church. So there were other writings out there, other Christian writings. There were books that we have in our canon, that we're going to get into the idea of canon in a bit, that, were, that had some dispute. There were some Christians who disputed whether books like James, Jude, Second Peter, Second and Third John, Hebrews, and Revelation. Those were books that it, there was some discussion. Should we accept these as sacred scripture or not? Or are these sacred scripture or are they not? Um, about the Gospels, we know that Matthew and John were actually among the twelve, right? They were disciples of the Lord Jesus. But Mark and Luke weren't. Mark was probably a young man who was among the, whose parents were among the followers of Jesus while he was on earth. Luke was a physician, a Gentile physician, who didn't, uh, who didn't come to faith until much later. But what about other Gospels named after others among the twelve disciples of Judah? Twelve disciples of Judah, of Jesus. So the, what about the Gospel of Thomas found in 1945? The Gospel of Judas found in 2006? These have gotten the most attention in recent decades. But there are a lot more Gospels. The Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Andrew, the Gospel of Philip. Depending on how you count them, there are over 50 different books that were called Gospels in existence in the early centuries of Christianity. So why aren't they included? Why don't we have the Gospel of Thomas in here? Paul's letters. So we're in 1 Corinthians right now. We know that Paul wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth because they're referenced. Two of them are included in the New, uh, the New Testament books. I think, if I remember right, it's like they're 1 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians. Our 2 Corinthians was actually the third letter. But there were four total letters. Well, that brings up an interesting question. What if suddenly someone in some shepherd boy throws a stone at another clay pot and they find a, uh, uh, an actual copy of the, third, of, this, of the second letter? Would that be considered that, a genuine letter of Paul to Corinth? Would that be considered scripture or not? Right? So are we missing some of these books that God intended for be, to be in the Bible? Also in Colossians 4.16, Paul tells the church to read his letter to the Laodiceans and that there's a letter from Le- that went to the Laodiceans that they should read. Well, is that a lost book of the New Testament? Are we missing something because we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans? So we know that the scripture writers were writing other things that we don't have and we also know that there were other writings by other people. So these, these questions, how do we know that we've got the right things? And these questions can be unsettling if you've never considered it before, which is why, again, we're discussing it here. So you won't be blindsided if a non-Christian brings up these ideas to you and just tells you that it's foolish to believe the Bible. All right, next slide. 20th century discoveries. Two very, very important discoveries in the last century. Uh, these were international news. They ignited all sorts of fresh debates about the ideas of the canon of Scripture. And in each of these archaeological finds, we discovered new writings related to Judaism and Christianity that we didn't have before. The first on the left is Dead Sea Scrolls. Can anyone, it was early, can anyone remember 
No, I don't think anyone here would have remembered the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a little too far back. Uh, not, not, 1946, I think, was the first one, so I, I'm not sure that any it would, be of, would have been of, of age of maturity at that time. Um, a th- about a thousand manuscripts total were discovered, and there's been even more finds in recent years. These scrolls that were written by the Essene community, uh, a religious sect in early, kind of around the time of Jesus, and there are so many biblical copies of the biblical writings uh, that are a thousand years earlier than the than the previous than we previously had had. So there's a copy of say the Great Isaiah Scroll, right? The Great Isaiah Scroll, um, uh, and that's a thousand years earlier than any copy that we had had up until that time. So forty percent of the scrolls are texts of the Hebrew Scriptures. They're now the oldest copies we have of many Old Testament books of the Bible. But there are also copies of other religious Jewish writing that were not part of the Hebrew Bible that we recognize today, such as the book of Enoch, the book of Jubilees, the book of Tobit, not to mention the wisdom of Sirach, and Psalms 152 through 155. You didn't know there were Psalms 152 through 155, did you? Except that's the question that we're posing. You know, when, when fresh things, you know, when discoveries like that happens, how does that affect our understanding of the Bible? Then the second one, on the right here, we've got the Nag Hammadi Library, and that's, of the new, that's connected to the New Testament can, the canon. It's a collection of mostly Gnostic Christian texts. So it's you know, from a sect of, an early divergent sect of Christianity. This was discovered in Egypt in the town of Nag, Nag Hammadi in 1945. It was essentially like a trash heap that they, that they kind of uncovered. They found... 13 leather-bound codexes over a 1,000 pages of material in in a sealed jar buried in the ground. And the most famous work discovered among all those texts was the Gospel of Thomas. But since this discovery, it sparked a lot of liberal biblical scholarship about lost versions of Christianity and their lost scriptures that were suppressed by the majority sect of Orthodox Christianity. So when you have these other writings... The story goes that, boy, there were lots of un- there were lots of diverse beliefs about Jesus, lots of uh, lots of different understandings of Jesus going on, and they have and scriptures were written like this, and scriptures were written like this, and scriptures were written like this. Well, then the church got together and said, "We got to put a stop to this. We got to exercise some control over all this. So we're only going to take this, and we're going to you know, marginalize everything else." And that's the narrative that's out there. Because they don't, for one, there's not a belief in a, an, of a God who's sovereignly superintending the process, for one thing. All right, so this is kind of technical stuff, all right? So it's helpful for us to do a certain amount of homework so we can have a basic working knowledge of how to respond to these ideas with, with confidence. But here's some of our, you know, some, of, some, uh, some quotes from the opponents, shall we say. Next slide, please. Chris? Okay, so here's Dan Bernstein. He writes, eventually, this is in Secrets of the Code, Secrets of the Code, Unauthorized Guide to the Mysteries Behind the Da Vinci Code. And this is what he writes. Eventually, four Gospels and 23 other texts were canonized, declared to be the Holy Scripture, into a Bible. This did not occur, however, until the 6th century. So he's arguing that this, that, that this didn't happen until much later. 
Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code. Just a question. I've not read that. Anyone who's, who's read the Da Vinci Code? Yeah. So they present these, these speakers that are presenting here with this text that we're about to read. They're presented as authoritative. One's supposedly a, a, one's a Harvard professor. One's a royal historian. And they're actually talking. And so when, you, when, you, when they talk about this stuff, you're supposed to think, oh, this stuff must be true. Right? Now, this is what th- this conversation happens. Who chose which Gospels to include, Sophie asked. Aha, T-Bing burst in with enthusiasm. The fundamental of irony of Christianity. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. That's how it's presented in that book. And how many thousands of people have read that book? Now, is that true? Is it not true? Is it partly true? It's in a work of historical fiction, but he was presenting it as if this is kind of what we ought to think. Lots of people read the Da Vinci Code and think that this is so. Okay, next slide. A couple more quotes. Stephen Prothero. This book is the Da Vinci Code. No, no, this is American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon. You can imagine he's going to be a real fan, isn't he? There are many places to begin this search for the American Jesus, but the 4th century Council of Laodicea may be the most accurate, appropriate rather. At that gathering, early Christians met to close the canon of the still-evolving Christian Bible. Some, following the 2nd century theologian Marcion, insisted that only that the one true church should have one true gospel. Others, citing Marcion's contemporary Irenaeus, fought for four, one for each corner of the earth. Inexplicably, Irenaeus got his way. Now, we're gonna, not going to go over every aspect of these, these different claims, but this is, again, this idea that, you know, it was like sausage, like a really messy process or whatever. Our favorite uh, theologian here, Bart Ehrman. Next slide. Right, he's the, he's the guy from uh, uh, North Carolina. Even though millions of people worldwide read the New Testament, whether from curiosity or religious devotion, very few ask what this collection of books actually is or where it came from, how it came into existence, who decided which books to include, on what grounds, and when. The New Testament did not emerge as an established and complete set of books immediately after the death of Jesus. Many years passed before Christians agreed concerning which books should comprise their sacred scriptures with debates over the contour of the canon, the collection of sacred texts that were long, hard, and sometimes harsh. In part, this was because other books were available, also written by Christians, many of their authors claiming to be the original apostles of Jesus, yet advocating points of view quite different from those later embodied in the canon. And it is true. I mean, there's part of this that's, 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 that's accurate, right? Some of these, the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, diverges greatly from what the, what the New Testament teaches, you know, so these other these other works are out there that actually um, would contradict main tenets of what the Bible would actually claim. So, what do we do with all this? If we inform ourselves with the Da Vinci Code, or if we don't inform ourselves at all, then some um, friend comes quoting a skeptic scholar, then we're going to get unsettled. So, let's see. Uh, yeah, next slide, please, Chris. I want to answer this big question: Why trust the Bible when we don't know which books ought to have been in there? by answering five smaller questions. We're going to tackle three today. We should have time for questions. No promises. And two we're going to take next week to frame our discussion and lead up to answering our big question. Number one, why is this question important? Next slide. We do not have an inspired list of the inspired writings. So open up your Bible to page 
to, to the first page, not Genesis 1. Most likely, and there might be a presentation page or something, but oh, mine has a whole preface. I don't think I've ever read it. But there's a table of contents there, isn't there? Right? Sometimes it's one alphabetical and one in book order. So, And this lists the different books that are in the Bible. And if you're using the Bible most of us are using, you have 66 books written. 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Now, there is no inspired list of these inspired writings. These writings are God-breathed, but we do not have a God-breathed list of which writings are God-breathed. God didn't fax this title page down from heaven in AD 95. Right? Where did this list come from? How do we know that it's accurate? How do we know we have the right books? So if the Bible is not one book, but a collection of 66 books, how do we know which ones made it in and who made that decision? So we know that the Bible is God's word and the Bible is true, but which books precisely are God's word? The Bible itself does not tell us what belongs in the Bible. Right? There is no you know, chapter in, in you know, Ephesians that says, oh, by the way, church, these are the 66 books, some of which haven't been written yet, that you need to have in your Bibles. Right? So God has not given us an inspired list. Other Christian groups or Christian groups and religions have different books in their Bibles. Next slide. Let's look at Roman Catholics. So Catholic Bibles are bigger than ours. Right? They include the Apocrypha, which are some books that were originally written in Greek in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And many Protestant Bibles, including the original King James, would include those same books in the physical copies of God's Word in its own section for its historical benefit. And the Reformers used to say things like, you should go ahead and read those books. You know, they're, good, they're, you know, they're good for history, they're good for meditation on, they're not the Scriptures. But the, but the Catholics accept them as Scripture. Should we still print them in our Bibles today? Come to the Reformation Conference. Come to the ref- <laughs> Yeah, and ask that question, whether if that's not in, uh, in, Sean's, in Sean's actual talks. Next slide. Mormons. So Mormons consider the Book of Mormon and also the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price to be part of their canonical Scriptures, and they call it another testament of Jesus Christ. And that, as we said before, that's when Joseph Smith claims to have found golden plates in New York written in Reformed Egyptian, which is just a made-up language, and used special, special glasses to translate them. So are we missing another testament of Jesus Christ? Can more books be added to the canon of the Bible, like the Book of Mormon? Or if we were to discover that fourth letter to Corinth, would we be adding it to the Bible, right? If, if so, by what criteria? All right. Third, we've got Muslims. Who? The central scriptural text for them is, of course, the Quran. They believe that a series of visions to, by the angel Gabriel, this revealed God's word to the prophet Muhammad written down in Arabic. 
And it's not so much that Muslims don't believe in the Bible, it's just they believe the Bible has been so hopelessly corrupted and therefore misinterpreted that this isn't a reliable source of God's word. And so God gave the Quran as a replacement and correction. So can, can, can God continue to give new revelation and add to and even correct the Bible? Sorry, I I know that I'm asking all the questions. A lot of the answers are going to come next week, but we're going to ask a lot of questions this week. Next slide. And then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, the Jews have only the Hebrew Scriptures. They don't recognize the New Testament as canonical Scripture. They assume the authority of the Old Testament books. If we do the same, if we assume the authority of the Old Testament, how can we establish that the New Testament books should be recognized as possessing equal authority? So while Catholics, Mormons, and Muslims would all say we're missing some of the writings in our canon, the Jews would claim the opposite, that we've got too many books. All right, next slide. This is really important, right? Why is this important? Because we rely on the Bible for our salvation, so we better make sure we do have the right books. The issue of trusting the Bible is rather a moot point if we don't know what books constitute the Bible. All the effort we have put forward so far in this course is demonstrating that the Bible is God's word inspired by God and does not contain errors. It's also a unique uh, revelation and reliable, historically speaking, not a bunch of myths. But that doesn't matter if we're defending the trustworthy nature of the wrong books. So we're staking our lives, even our eternities, on this word. The Bible itself warns us not to add or take away from it. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor shall you take away from it. Revelation 22.18-19, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So the Bible itself does... Yeah, go ahead, Larry. Yes, key to the scriptures. That's Christian science, right? Yeah, I have um, Seventh-day Adventist relatives who put um, some books from Ellen White on a near par with scripture or on par. Um, So... a lot of them were. Joseph Smith, born in Vermont, you know, uh, yes. we're just a hotbed of, uh, of, of all, sorts of, all sorts of heresies. Muhammad wasn't born in Vermont. So. Northeast Kingdom. <laughs> all right, so I'm raising all these questions. Maybe you've never thought about these questions. Maybe you've just, you know, been content to read your Bible and pray and study the scriptures. That's fine. This is for field training. Matt, am I getting that word right? Where'd Matt go? BJ, am I getting that word right? Field training? Okay, fair fair enough. That means I'm wrong somehow. All right, so what do we mean? How can we give good reasons why we defend this Bible and explain it to others and be be settled and satisfied in our love and study of the scriptures. Next slide. So that's, what do we mean by the canon of scripture? Okay, anyone know? Anyone tell me what the canon is? How would you define it? Okay, I'll define it then. Next slide. (laughs) Not, 
Not that kind of cannon. Next slide. Cannon with one N. The canon of scripture. There were, there's a Greek word, kanon, which refers to reeds which grew along the Nile River. They were straight and they had natural grooves in them with evenly spaced notches. So they're really handy. They're kind of like God's own rulers, right? They were, would be cut and they would be used as a measuring rod. In other words, they would be, they would be like our rulers. It's actually referenced in Ezekiel 40. Metaphorically, the word was also understood to refer to the standard by which we measure. That's its use in Galatians 6. It was the rule that we should live by, and it came to refer, not surprisingly, to the list of the books of the Bible, the standard by which the life and Christian and teaching of Christians is measured, evaluated, and corrected. So the canon is the Bible the books of the Bible by which we measure ourselves and everything we do. That's why it's called the canon. So the canon is used in other contexts. Actually, I bet more people now know the word canon than did 20 years ago because it's also a collection of any authoritative writings. That's what it's come to use. People speak this way about other literature. For instance, next slide, the Star Wars canon Right? The question of what's canon and what's not. Right? So, for instance, in between the last of the first films, right, then a bunch of people went out and wanted to expand the universe and wrote all sorts of different books and explaining all sorts of new characters and so-and-so and all these things. And then Disney bought the rights to it, and they didn't want to have to mess with all the stuff that had been written next, so they decided to close that off and say, these are Star Wars legends, and now we're going to pick up with the Star Wars canon. And now, you know, that's considered authoritative, and these other things are under the category of legends, right? Within an imaginary universe, I know. But so some things are canon, some things are not canon. If you're a geek like me and you're geeking out to Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, right? The question is, you know, what's the nature of their canonicity within Tolkien's universe? Are they authoritative or are they not? And I don't actually know the answer to that. And I don't really care because I'm going to just watch the show and just enjoy it. Um, but Matt's going to geek out with me. Um, while the process is obviously different than what Disney did, we're used to using this word the same way, the collection of authoritative writings. What's the stuff that you can take to the bank? Okay, that's what a canon, what the canon is. Next slide. Now, this is the last question we're going to pick up today, and then we're going to have some questions. Who decides which books belong in the Bible? And there are two important points here. Point number one. God determines the canon through inspiration, not man. God determined the canon through inspiration, right? God is the one who breathed out the scripture. There's plenty of things written, including BJ's sermon for today, though we should hold it as trustworthy and revere it as he's preaching the authoritative word. But we don't believe that God is God-breathing BJ's sermon, right? Whereas we do believe that scripture is God-breathed and cannot have an error, right? Because it's the word of the unlying God. So God spoke, when God speaks, he speaks with authority. His words should be recognized as authoritative. And in that sense, the canon is a byproduct of God's process of inspiration. God chose to author through the Holy Spirit, 
superintending human authors, right? We talked about that in week one. When God chose to author specific writings, they carry his divine authority. God chose those authoritative writings, and he chose when to author them. God is the one who chose. So through the process of inspiration, through his God-breathedness, God's the one who determines the canon. He inspired some books. He did not inspire other books. Right? Some books are the word of God. That's his decision. Some are not. So, it's not... We, we, it, this is fundamentally a theological point. That God is the one who's, who's over all this process. He inspired some. He breathed out some words and, some, and not others. That means that people weren't deciding which ones they liked. They're trying to determine which books are the books in which God himself speaks. That's the standard. Right? So we don't determine the canon. People don't determine the canon. People discover. We would use the word discover the canon. This is very important to emphasize the divine side of this equation before we consider the human role in understanding what is canon. Most discussions of the canon of Scripture jump to what we're going to do next week and look at the historical process of humans figuring out which books are canonical. And that is important, of course, but it only makes sense if we're standing firmly on the divine standard that's already in place. God has spoken. He's spoken here. There's other places he hasn't spoken. God's people weren't deciding which books they liked. The basis of the selection was which books were divinely inspired. God had to inspire a writing before it could be canonical. What does this mean? It means that church councils don't determine the canon. The canon is an artifact of God's revelation, not an object of revelation itself. Okay, I'm going to say that again, because that's a little subtle. The canon is an artifact of revelation. God's revelation comes first. We discover it. Not that the canon itself is, a, is an object of revelation, as if God sent us down the, uh, the facts list of the 66 books. Now, this is actually a difference between us and Roman Catholics. So, Roman Catholics and Protestants don't just have different books in the canon of Scripture. They actually have a different understanding of what the canon of Scripture actually is. It's subtle, but it's very important. So, Catholics believe that the canon is an authoritative list of books. I wish I'd had this on a slide. The canon is an authoritative list of books. And where does that authority come from? It comes through the church and its councils. So the councils and the church determine what the list is, and that list is, has its authority based on the fact that it's the church that's figuring it out. So the authority rests on the church to determine. So it's an authoritative list of books. As Protestants, we believe that the canon is a list of authoritative books. Okay, authoritative list of books, a list of authoritative books. Where's the authority now? The authority's in the word, the word itself. 
not in the church to discover it, but the, 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 in the word of God itself. The authority lies with the word, not the church. And that the authority comes from God when he inspired them. So it's not that the church, with all of its you know, God-given authority, so to speak, determines, okay, this book's going to be scripture. Instead, it's that book's already scripture by virtue of the fact that God breathed it out, and the church is going, to, is going to recognize that. In one, the church stands over the Bible. In the other, the church stands under the Bible. So Catholics would essentially believe that the church creates the Bible, whereas Protestants believe that the Bible creates the church. We're a church that comes into being on the basis of the word of God. Now that is tricky, and we'll have time to ask some questions before. This is one of the reasons that Protestants proclaimed Scripture alone, sola scriptura, in the Reformation. The Bible is the authority, not church councils, not tradition, not the Pope. It's the Bible that has the highest authority. So if the Bible disagrees with other lesser authorities, like popes or councils or whatever, we have to obey what? The Bible, not whatever human authority is there. So that's God determines the canon. People discover the canon, and we believe that's also through the power of the Spirit and providence. So the human role in the process is figuring out the canon of Scripture. It's not to determine the canon. We have no authority to to proclaim books authoritative. But we discover the canon. We have to figure out which books God has already inspired. And early church leaders, either in their own writings or by working together at larger gatherings like councils and synods, they recognize what God has already determined to be his word. This process, yes, is a little messy, though not as messy as, as Bart Ehrman would want you to think. God has providentially led his people to recognize which books are canonical through the power of the Holy Spirit guiding them. We do care about which books the early church received and recognized as canonical, but not as an authority in themselves. It's natural and inevitable that God's people will hear God's voice in the writings that God himself has breathed out. All right. At this point, I'm going to stop and ask for questions. We do have some time for questions. So, some subtle things in here. The next week, we're going to ask the last two questions. How do we know we have the right Old Testament books? And how do we know we have the right New Testament books? Okay, Wes, question. So, how did the Catholic Church uh, begin adding books? Or when did that take place? Yeah. Uh, So, that kind of got... BJ, you're going to have to correct me. It's around the time of the Reformation when that split really became, became very clear. It's a, it was a little fuzzier up to that point, but in the Reformation, especially since some of the doctrines that separate Catholics and Protestants, uh, like purgatory, for instance, are found there, there's, in the Apocrypha and not in the Scriptures. So that's when, if my memory serves, Rome said, no, we're going to lock this down. These books are Scripture. Is that right? Okay. So, so before then, they were not considered. They would have been. They would have been books that would have had varying degrees of, of respect. Right. Yeah, did. Do the Catholics actually separate the Apocrypha from the Scripture? Or they, because 
I believe it's separate. It's in its, in, its, in, its, in its own section, but it's in its section right in between old and new, and, and considered, you know, these are also inspired works. Because that's where it always gets screwy when you're talking about Catholics, and you know, purgatory and all this yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, the Reformers recommended the reading of the Apocrypha, just not as scripture. Right, the the wars, you know, the the wars um, of the Jews against uh, the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and everything, all that. That's really helpful stuff, and we get it from the Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha. Yeah, John. Okay, that's a good question. So, so God is still speaking. That's a is a is a Church of Christ. I've seen that. I don't remember which one. United Church of Christ. God is still speaking. That's an attempt to say that the that the God who speaks and who has revealed truth continues to speak and reveal truth and can in fact speak new truth that the church might not have have considered before. So, I think oftentimes that's a way to say God is still speaking. Oh, now we're realizing that. God affirms homosexuality and, and homosexual behavior, for instance, because God is still speaking. He continues to reveal, and so the church can, can mold with, can, can adjust as God reveals more and more to his people over time. We actually believe that, that God's revelatory work closed with the, with, in the generation of the apostles uh, and, and we look back. We do not, yeah, of course God continues to speak but not in a way where definitive revelation is being changed. Matt? And, and not in conflict with what he's already written. Good. Yeah. I just want to footstop what you said here. This is just gold, um, and it's actually not debating about how many angels can dance on the pen of a needle. Uh, it is all the difference in the world between determining scripture and discovering it. Between determining by saying we get to decide, and by saying no, we're simply recognizing what is. Yeah, and, and actually, all the difference in the world. You know, parenting, right? We, we, we as parents can understand that reality, right? Is, is it our children's job to determine what things that we say are authoritative, or is it our job, their job, just to make sure that they actually have a good, a right understanding of what we actually said? Uh, one would be, yeah, Andrew? So if uh, going with this distinction here, determining versus discovery, or the canon is an artifact rather than an object, at some point, aren't, aren't you saying that the, the books that are in the canon, um, the books that happen to be in the canon are still the judgment of some person, though? They just happen to have judged these books to be consistent with the rest of Revelation. Yeah, of course, of course, at the end of the day, there was human decision involved. So then my follow-up question is, is was God's inspiration involved in those decisions? Um, depends on inspir- depends on what inspiration. I would be more comfortable with the idea that God is providentially working to ensure it. And then my follow-up to the follow-up yes, <laughs> is um, what happens if um, if uh, intentioned and uh, well-intentioned and faithful expositors disagree one way or the other. Like Back one, day, one group yeah. of people have made a, have made the judgment that these books are consistent, and the other group have made the judgment that these books are consistent. Uh, 
you talking about today, or are you talking about back in the in the theory back in the day? Well, I think the process was. I think we'll, we'll see next week how the New Testament specifically, when when the kind of the, that Athanasius letter I referenced is kind of when the twenty seven are, are are listed. So yeah, I think there. I don't think that there was. I mean, that in the good providence of God, that process did take time. And, you know, if someone was preaching out of First Clement as if that was scripture, I just think God is a big picture preserving his church. So, we don't have to pretend that there wasn't a certain amount of messiness in the process. That's not what we're claiming. We're claiming that it's actually still, um, uh, still a discovery of what God has already chosen to do and speak. More next week, the children are looking at me through the door windows. You're at the doors of the castle. Yeah, exactly. Send out patrols. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that you have written and you have spoken uh, through this word. We can, in fact, base our lives on it. Thank you for the men, uh, and maybe women, I'm not sure, who you used to discover this word uh, to us, that we might live it and we might have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen our faith, strengthen our ability to defend it. In Jesus' name, amen.